Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. That sound official? I am the legendary Burl Bear, Howard Lapidus, manager of the star, is off his rocker. No, he's off getting an award. Best Bottom Feeder Award. <laughs> no, I think he's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award because they figure he's just about out of gas. <laughs> and I'm the one who almost kicked a cosmic bucket, and he gets the award. How about that? I did get a Lifetime Achievement Award about 30 years ago from the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Say, so what do they teach at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting? They teach Connecticut. There we go. Now you're probably saying, is Mark C.G. Boyer our fact checker here today? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And you notice his mic is mercifully turned down. <laughs> it's up. <laughs> oh, it's up. Well, okay. Uh, we have a kind of a switcheroo for you today. Originally, we were going to have uh, Richard Godwin, who at about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning uh, gets hold of me and says he has a horrible virus. And he said it with an English accent, which was very impressive, especially in text. And... <laughs> Wanted to know if he could swap with uh, next week's guest, and we said, we don't want you getting ill on the air. That's the audience's job. So uh, so they did a switcheroo, a swaparoo. Probably not the first time for uh, Richard, first time for Kevin. <laughs> Kevin's such a moral guy. He's so upstanding. He's like a farmer out standing in his field. Let me give you a brief rundown here of, of Kevin's uh, accomplishments. If I could dare read them to you. <laughs> I did I did have them here just a moment ago. I don't know where they went. And it was set, yeah, it was it was really good too. Somehow it's bringing up my email instead. I don't know why that's happening. <laughs> Kevin M. Sullivan. That's the M is so you can tell from all the other authors named Kevin Sullivan. He wrote The Bundy Murders, a comprehensive history published by McFarlane. Uh, and this is the standard of the industry of Bundy books. And he also wrote The Trail of Ted Bundy, digging up the untold stories. He also wrote The Bundy Secrets, Hidden Files on America's Worst Serial Killer. Ted Bundy on Sunnybrook Farm. Uh, Ted Bundy Goes West. <laughs> what is the music I'm hearing? Oh, that was someone called me on my phone, apparently. No. I know. Oh, maybe it's my, uh, my, uh, I, 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 my tablet's playing tunes. By yeah. play, playing Kevin Sullivan's theme song. Bundy in the morning, Bundy in the evening. <laughs> you know, if it weren't for Ted Bundy, you'd have to get a job. Uh, I tease you a little bit about that. Uh, but he has written other things, aside from being the world's living Ted Bundy expert. He, he also uh, contributed to Serial Killer Quarterly, which, uh, which I did also. And he wrote Body Harvest, Prolific American Killers, starring Ted Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> but the one that excites me most is the one you did uh, about uh, Sister Golden Hair. <laughs> what? Yeah, America? You know who that is. George Armstrong Custer. Ah, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Two books for George, too. Yeah. Personality, one, a personality study, and the other was a full biography. Yeah, a personality yeah. study. What did, what did your personality study determine about him besides that he was an ass? Well, you know, he... The thing about Custer, uh, you know, uh, people either love him or hate him. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. And, um, you know, his men, uh, hey, you know, he actually, if you look at Custer, he wasn't uh, afraid to throw himself into battle. He was always at the head of his men. He had, as far as a warrior, he did have a lot of really good qualities. But uh, And his men in the Civil War you know, loved him. But he never found the same uh, respect when he led uh, troops into the Indian Wars. Um, probably a whole different thing going on there. Well, yeah, and, and he also he also was a bit. I think he was a bit more harsh uh, or harsher with these uh, these troops, and uh, they just didn't respect him. But uh, you know, Custer did have this uh, 
ability to, uh, you know, fulfill the phrase, do as I do, don't do as I say. And he would skirt the rules himself, but he didn't like other people skirting the rules. And a fellow that served with him uh, during the Indian Wars named uh, Captain Frederick Benteen, uh, he really knew how to lead men. And, and, and Benteen was a thorn in Custer's side for most of the time that they were, you know, uh, together. But anyway. But well, that, uh, that ability to lead men is something that I don't think can be learned. Uh, right. from a textbook. It's something that has to do with charisma and insight and uh, all sorts of other things. Yes, yes. yes. But you know what? Uh, when, when this, uh, uh, during the Civil War, when uh, Custer married uh, Libby, uh, and Libby had a chance to meet Abraham Lincoln, I think it was in 1864. Good year. Uh, yeah, and he introduced, yeah, one more year on the Civil War and they'd wrap that thing up. Yep. Uh, but when, when Lincoln realized it was George Custer's wife, he said, oh, you're the wife whose husband wants to be killed. <laughs> because, because he never, Philip Sheridan said, all my other men that, that marry, they have a tendency to pull back from battle because they don't want to lose what they have with their wives. But, but Sheridan said, Custer, you never do that. You're still no, I bet she felt man. pretty damn insulted by that. <laughs> I'd rather well, die. You, know, <laughs> you, you could take that the wrong way, that's true. But, but uh, he was very faithful to his, uh, I used to call, I mean, I, I think I referred to it in uh, Shattering the Myth as uh, war was his mistress, and uh, he was very faithful to her. Well, yeah, war was his mistress. Nothing like killing people to get your heart, I guess. Did yeah, well, you know, he, I mean, he loved it. He, he said at one point, he said he was sorry to see the war come to an end in one respect because he would love to have a battle every day of his life. Jeez. And on the other hand, when he said he saw how uh, much damage it did, not just the lives lost, but the amount of wounded. I mean, if you, you have to think about it. There was a about 650,000 deaths in the American Civil War. Ooh. But you could but you could triple that number, maybe quadruple it in wounded. And uh, they didn't have the medical care in those days they do now. So if you're wounded, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm surprised anybody survived, but you know there's lots of people with with uh, amputations of their legs, their arms and uh yeah, I mean they survived, but I mean it's just you know they didn't have antibiotics then. They didn't have stuff to put people to sleep. I mean, they found I mean, you've heard of the term bite the bullet, right? Right. Well, they found uh, bullets that actually had teeth mark, marks in them. Uh, they excavated behind what was formerly a uh, Civil War hospital, and I guess they let them, you know, kind of bite on those. I mean, I, I would think they'd shatter their teeth. Yeah, but. so would I. I think they'd rather bite a belt, you know, or I would say a, bite a yeah, porcupine. I say, hand me a belt or knock yeah. me out. No, no, not that brass. I don't want to point it inward either. Because <laughs> they hit the firing pit on that bad. thing. It's just bad. It's just, it was a bad time to have. Yeah. Well, I, what I really appreciate, uh, being as I appreciated myself, <laughs> it's not like Steve Barton and Barton Short. I watched that special last night where they're insulting and complimenting each other, is the research that it takes to, to do one of these books. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, is an incredible amount of research, so i got to compliment you on that. Thank you. Uh, if, if, if people that don't write books, they don't realize what what it takes to go to get information. I mean, it's just, you have to immerse yourself into that world. Anybody that writes a biography of anybody really gets to know that person well. And sometimes uh, better than they know themselves. Their, their life. Yeah, and it's just, it's something. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's great. And sometimes people just they don't think about how much there is to writing a book. But, yeah, it's something. The one that really ticks me off, and I'm sure you've run into this one, is you, <laughs> I've said this before, but few have, the new listeners of the show haven't heard me get on this soapbox. <laughs> one of the most difficult things in writing a true crime book is if there's a trial. Yeah. And you got to pour through the police reports. you got to put the testimony, the this, the that, and find the important points, what you think are the important and interesting points, and somehow yeah. make them palatable. It's a yeah. great deal of work. And nothing pisses me off this reading a review of one of our books. Is, well, apparently Bear just took a whole bunch of trial transcripts and put them in the book. No, no. That's, 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 that's the haters. There's always haters out there. Always. No matter what you do, no matter what you write, no matter how well you write it, they can't find anything good about it. And that's all they do. I mean, they live in somebody's basement, and they're on the computer, and that's all they do. So, um, yeah. Mark C.G. Boyer is in a basement on his computer, and he has a question for you. 
Oh yeah, go ahead. Hey. <laughs> um, I, I just uh, your opinion uh, was uh, was Custer's action a, one of the greatest military blunders of all time? What? Or uh, or was he just caught off guard? Little big one, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was a uh, yeah. Well, you know, if you ever have a chance to read my book, or I mean, or the other books as well. My first book I ever wrote was uh, Shattering the Myth, and it was a personality uh, study of him. And I will tell you this: that following Custer to the Little Bighorn was it's a, it was just a it was a bad thing because I think something happened to Custer on that, and it was a. He, you know, he didn't. He didn't want to negotiate a peace with those Indians. What happened was there was all these tribes out on the plains, and they were gathering together. And they knew that the whites wanted them in to the reservations, and because they didn't come in at a certain time, the army was going to go hunting them. After the Battle of uh, the Little Bighorn, the chief said, you know, if Custer would have come to us, like with a white flag and negotiated, we would have gone back. But Custer didn't really want that. He, he wanted the battle. Now, here's the thing. The U.S. Army always had used Indians, friendly Indians, tribes, uh, to uh, scout and track other Indians. And because the whites just couldn't do it properly. No, and, no, because like the Sarasota Indians were a fantastic track. Yeah, I mean, these people really know what they're doing. And so uh, I remember uh, uh, a lot of people were warning Custer because of the amount of uh, uh, lodgepole things in the ground. You could tell, you could almost tell how many Indians were moving by how the ground was dug up, how wide it was, and, and the weight of it, and where the lodgepoles, they put everything on the canvas and they drag it. And uh, they kept warning Custer that this, um, this upcoming battle was going to be uh, bad. And uh, I remember his tr most trusted scout, by the name of Bloody Knife came to him and said, uh, you know, General, um, there's more Sioux waiting for us than we have bullets. And um, he, he, and so his response was, well, I guess we'll get through them in, in, in one day. And, uh, you know, uh, his white scout, um, a man named Charlie Reynolds, uh, Charlie had a premonition that he would be killed in the upcoming thing, and uh, he kind of wanted to get out of it. And, Don't blame uh, him, yeah. But, yeah, but, yeah, no kidding. And so... He, you know, he knew uh, that that there was a massive gathering of uh, of, of Indians on the Great Plains, uh, and uh, that there was going to be real, real problems. So it seemed like everybody could see the disaster that was going to unfold, except Custer, and uh, nobody could counter him. And I mean, there was just everybody around him had this sense of doom. And uh, you know, I remember working at a radio station once when it was a rating period. I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> this was I would, but this was I would call a permanent sense of doom. But uh, that's how it unfolded, and he made a huge mistake. It's like everything. It was like the perfect storm. Uh, and he was in the eye of it. And, yeah, he was in it, and Custer was doing everything wrong, and the Indians were doing everything right, and they just they just got a major victory. Also, he was warned by Benteen. See, the, the Seventh Cavalry was made up of uh, like seven companies, mm -hmm. and uh, three companies went with Custer. Some, uh, I think it was about um, I don't know, six hundred men or something like that. But uh, but uh, and then there was three that. Uh, traveled uh, in in one direction. Uh, Benteen, ben, he said, I want you to scout the hills to the left. Benteen thought, there's not going to be anybody to the left. He said, and Benteen told him, he said, if there's as many um, warriors as they say that there are, shouldn't we keep, you know, the command together? And it would be smart to do that. And he said, Captain, you have your orders. In other words, shut up and go on and do what I say. So he did it, and he kept going left for a number of miles until he said, this is useless, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to obey this order anymore, and I'm going to head back. Well, what, what Custer had done, I guess he had like maybe 300 of that with him, and um, so he, when, when Custer spotted the village, he went up uh, on the, he told Reno to attack the uh, village at the lower end, that he was going to go up like on the bluffs, and hit them from the other direction and do like a pincer movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, and of course, they, the reason why Custer did that, they thought the Indians would scatter. And then Custer said this to Reno. 
He said, attack the village and I will support you with the entire command. Now, I don't know what he meant by that, but here's what Reno heard. We're going to attack and then here you're going to come immediately. So Reno attacked the village and he had to form a skirmish line. And his troops were rather green. A lot of them were green and they were firing uh, at distances that were not going to reach the warriors. Yeah. Then the warriors came to them. They were driven into a wood. Then they, then, then they ran this gauntlet where a lot of them were killed up into what is known as Reno Hill. Custer had gone on north, and what, and so they, after they had uh, r ripped up Reno, they attacked Custer where he was coming down, annihilated him, and then went back and then people on what is known as Reno Hill, and finally Benteen joined him there. Uh, they, they had like a, a couple of days up there while uh, they were losing men because the Indians came back and surrounded them, and it was like a siege. And but yeah, it, it was it was a great disaster for the U.S. Army, but the, but the uh, but, but the Native Americans could not celebrate long because then that the the ire of the yeah. nation, as it were, awakened uh, a sleepy, cranky giant. You know, one of the most upsetting right. things of being a young uh, young American sounds like something David mm -hmm. Bowie would say. Uh, mm -hmm. That the Apache Wars, you've heard of them. Oh, yeah. uh, they're, they're, the Apaches were being just fine. <laughs> it was the yeah. guy who owned the concessions and the licensing and the merchandising. They were going to close him down because everything was so peaceful they didn't need him there. <laughs> and so he started sending back false reports of the Apaches on the warpath, and they weren't. Oh, man. And so they sent the troops out. Of course, he had provided all the supplies to the troops. Sure. And they went after, what was it, uh, uh, was it Victor? And, yeah, that's, uh, that's, ter that's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrible. It was terrible. And, well, if we can just get down to Mexico, we'll be fine. So he takes off for Mexico, and they chase after him. <laughs> Come back here and, and let us kill you. Uh, that was really an outrage. When I read that, I went, "What? Um, my my people, my my country did that." I was embarrassed. But there's always somebody who doesn't give a damn uh, if they can yep. make money off of a war or any sort of conflict. Rockefeller, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, or Alcoa. <laughs> it's a classic one. Well, you know who? I mean, the gold rush. Remember the 1849. Oh, personally, yeah, very well. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. Now. Well, we don't go back that far, but okay, we were born a little after it. But listen, you know who made the money back then? I mean, there were people finding gold, but the real money was made by the merchants. Oh yeah, and out there, and they were selling shovels and bear and, and and all the you know wheelbarrows, barrels, and all this stuff and utensils, camp stuff. And they, they they made a fortune, and nobody's really. Uh, talk. I mean, you'll read this in in certain things and research. It, it can be researched, but yeah, I mean, everybody think of the 1849 gold rush. People were getting rich for the. It's really the merchants who, who were doing it. It always is. And you create still, a problem and then you provide the solution. <laughs> that was always Howard Hughes' works. method. That's how it works. It d does indeed. Then the other one. This is kind of a night nice story with a happier ending. Is uh, the Nez Perce, Nez Perce Indians in Oregon. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, ba -ba 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 Chief Joseph. Yes. And they thought they discovered gold there, and uh, 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 you know, uh, starts with a W, not Walla Walla Walula. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so they they kicked him off, you know, uh, and uh -huh. they made a run for the border, not Mexico, but they made a run for Canada. And that's of course from where the sun now uh, stands. I shall fight no more forever. Right. What I could never grasp, and you've studied this a hell of a lot more than I ever have. I just kind of you know read up the history and stuff. Mm -hmm. Sure. They they wanted them off of the uh, off of their own land there in uh, uh -huh. uh, the it's a beautiful area too, mm -hmm. and wanted sure. to put them wanted to put them you know like in uh, uh, you know some hellhole. <laughs> they wanted to put them where there's oh, yeah. you know nothing yeah. but gravel. Instead they said, well we'll just go to Canada, and they chased them. Why did they yep. just, you know, why did they have to chase them down and people dying in the frozen tundra? <laughs> oh, they're leaving. They're going to Canada. Finally, let them be Canada's problem. It's terrible. You know, I, the the Ness First campaign, I haven't studied as well as some of the others, but I know that when I mentioned Captain Benteen, he, he was actually involved in that Ness First campaign. Uh, there were a lot of people within the Army, even Custer. This was odd. He said, you know, if I was an Indian, I would prefer to be a warrior out on the Great Plains. And he was telling the truth there. He really didn't mind um, what they were doing, but as a soldier, he was going to bring it all to a halt. 
because he, th that's what he was ordered to do. And Benteen ha had a lot of sympathy for, for the plight of the Indians. Because, I mean, th th these men weren't stupid, but they, they could see what, what was happening. But the government was doing ridiculous stuff then, as uh, apparently they, they still do. But <laughs> No, even more so lately, if you've seen the, the latest one from the Department of Indian Affairs under the current administration, uh, the treaties we have with these nations are null and void because they really aren't sovereign nations. They're races. You have the Apache race, the Cherokee race, and we... <laughs> I, go, I beg your pardon, the Supreme Court has ruled on this numerous times. Yeah. Listen, it's crazy, and, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, we broke every treaty we had. Even the Indians that were working with us, th their lives weren't much better than than the ones that were, you know, formerly hostile. You know, there's the Madras uh, Reservation in uh, in Oregon, which is comprised of several tribes, and an acquaintance right. of mine is the uh, Treaty Defender Administrator. In the treaty, oh, there, is, there is a guy appointed... That the, I is appointed to defend the treaty from anyone who tries to break it, right? To, to defend the sovereign nation if someone tries to yeah. attack it. I said, well, uh -huh. who would, I mean, it's, it's sitting here in Oregon. What foreign power is going to try to attack it? And he goes, yeah. uh, the, the, the uh, state, state of Oregon. <laughs> Because <laughs> they kept they kept trying to take the water rights away from the uh, the Madras, and they, the Madras had put up the, uh, the the big hydroelectric plant, all this other stuff. They did it, not the yeah. state, and they were trying to find ways of taking the mineral rights and the water rights. They said, "There, I go into action. Show them the treaty. You can't do this." Yeah, yeah, that's something else. You know, uh, I remember uh, reading where Custer had said in, in his memoirs, he said that, and, and this is true. This is everybody has talked about this from from those years that that the um, army would supply weapons to the Indians and things like that. And th th there was a I can't remember the Indian's name, but this this chief he. Um, uh, you know, he, he had been making war with them. Well, they brought him in for a treaty, and uh, they were trying to butter him up so he would stop doing this. And they gave him, they they gave them coffee, they gave them sugar, they gave them weapons, and they gave him a a blue military jacket, right? <laughs> and a hat. And said that it's like the next time they attacked him, the guy was wearing his jacket. Huh. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? It's just, it's like I mentioned Alcoa earlier, when, you know, <laughs> we were we got the war effort, we're fighting them damn Nazis, and no one can send anything yeah. off to help Germany, uh, except Alcoa would just ship their stuff down to Mexico <laughs> and then sell it to <laughs> Germany. <laughs> Boy, they funny. got some bad press on that one. Yeah, I bet they did. Yeah, that's funny. When that came out, I think yeah. the, whoever was attorney general at that time uh, really roasted him. Uh, oh, yeah. Being so yeah. patriotic. <laughs> the oh, war effort. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. The Indian Wars are interesting to study. You know, they did. It's, uh, you know, it's just a, a lot of things happen, and, you know, some really fantastic leaders on the Native Americans rose up crazy horse. And, and uh, you know, Red Cloud, who uh, earlier uh, won, won the war along the Powder River Trail, and I've, I've been out there and I've seen those old forts, abandoned forts now, of course. But Did you ever yeah, read. Uh, a uh, Red Jacket's uh, speech to the missionaries. Figures <laughs> you're a, you know, a missionary no, I, guy. I don't think I've read things about Red Jacket. I don't think I've read that. No. The, uh, they did a presentation, shall we say, like a PowerPoint, uh, you know, or like an Amway yeah. presentation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to, to, uh, about uh, the Bible and uh, Jesus and all this stuff. And uh, went on and on uh, and ready to listen to it. And was, mm, that's interesting. Uh, and so it was all that. I'm going to paraphrase now because I don't have the speech memorized, of course. Sure. He's very gracious. Sure. He says, boy, says, you know, yeah. that sounds really good. He says, you know, the great spirit has given everyone different gifts. Gave you the wheel, didn't give us the wheel, darn it. <laughs> you know, why couldn't he have given us the wheel? No, you got the wheel. But we got insight into various things of agriculture that, uh, that you didn't know. And we'll share that with you, and you're sharing this with us. And it has some great moral uh, principles. And we think it's really nice that the Great Spirit has given you this. And I'll tell you what we're going to do. We will watch you and see if you live and behave the way you're taught to by this great teacher, Jesus. And, uh -huh. and if you do, great. And we'll probably just, you know, absorb right along with you. But yep. if not... You know, so uh, yeah. and they puts out his hand to shake hands with him, and they refuse to shake hands with him. The red jacket. Ah, I thought, okay. boy, they lost an opportunity there. Yep, well, that's right. 
Well, yeah, you know, there, there, there were times when there was peace on the plains and there was a, a, a time in, in, in other areas and then there, you know, these other things would happen and things would rise up. And one of the problems was that the young, young warriors sometimes would uh, slip out of uh, camps and uh, you know, you know where, where everybody was living, and you had a bunch of normal, just people living and conducting their lives, the Indians, and and they would slip out and form like posses and go and, and conduct raids. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if, if people got killed, it was more than than, than theft. If people got killed, there's a family in Louisville called the Oxmoor. They they uh, family and they have Oxmoor Farm, and they sold a lot. And there's malls built on their property now, but they still have a lot of property. Back in the Indian times. Uh, here, there were some there were some Indians that stole horses from them and took off, and they killed one one of these guys before they he got out of their off their land, and then they chased the rest to the Ohio River, which was a long chase from where they were. Wow! Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think they killed a couple more, and, and they recovered. They recovered a couple more, but it was the what it is is these young bucks that they they go out and they do this stuff. It didn't have to a be lot of pent-up energy, you know, testosterone from teenage years. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is how sometimes then you would have a countermeasure against the entire village. Oh, yeah. And you, Yeah, and it was bad. So, yeah. What was one of there was a story about, I think it was a Lakota, this uh, white kid, baby, uh -huh. somehow winds up being taken in and raised as part of the tribe. Does, yep, does that, not that It's just like uh, the Steve Martin movie, The Jerk, where he doesn't know he's not black. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't yeah. know, yeah, he doesn't know he's not black, and he's shocked yeah, when right. he finds out. Uh, and, yeah. boy, I, someone made some remark to him one time because he got, like, real fair skin and red hair. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and, oh, boy, was he furious that someone yeah. would say that he wasn't, uh, you know, genetically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But they had oh, somebody trying yeah. to have amazing abilities. There was one guy that infiltrated another tribe and he didn't look anything like them and yet they never right. saw him uh -huh. they never perceived him i think it's a thing of controlling yeah. your personal energy the trackers are real good at that where yeah. you know sneak up yeah. on the animal because the animal doesn't uh, get your vibe kind of like the dog yeah. whisperer you know he came to my house yeah. to to rehabilitate me and get my dog not to want to eat my girlfriend's dog Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, it's on cool. the YouTube. Uh, oh cool! And uh, he said the dog is picking up on Burl's energy, uh, Burl's concerns. So we're going to send Burl across the street so the dog doesn't pick up on his energy and his concerns. And sure enough, I saw the video. I'm gone. He walks over to my dog Isis. May she rest in peace. He goes. Yeah. And she rolls over on her back and submits. Yeah. <laughs> Brings the other dog over. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's got him walking on the same leash. You know, there you go. I had a couple of girlfriends who didn't get along with each other. I was thinking of bringing him over. I let him bump. Maybe Caesar can help with that. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, they came back two years later because the show, that episode was so popular, they wanted to do a follow-up on, on how things were because the plot of the original was that we couldn't get together because our dogs didn't get along. Well, by the time they came back on this follow-up, the dogs were getting along fine as we weren't getting along. So, yeah, it was so, something other than the dogs. Yeah, so uh, I said to Caesar, and they had seen the show, I said, you know, I've been trying to find a way of getting these dogs to fight again <laughs> because I got nowhere to go and nothing to do when I get there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's funny. It it was, it was kind of yeah, fun, no. though. Uh, great. It's, it's strange. Now, do they have any serial killers on the plains? I mean, you're a serial killer expert at a... Well, there's snakes on a plane. There's snakes on uh, a plane. <laughs> yeah, the snakes... Yeah, that's funny. That's true. Uh, you know, uh, there, there, of course, there had to have been. That that term... I mean, you know, I, I, that's, a, that's a really good question because I've never really heard of anybody out, and I want to say out that direction that was doing that, that, that I know of, but you know there were people doing that all over the United States, I mean, you hear about these, what's that lady's name, she she used to board people in her home. Oh yeah, kill them, bury them in the backyard. <laughs> they would disappear. I wonder where they went. Yeah, she was a real piece of work. Well, sure, who she had, was it her husband or her uncle or something working with her? And yeah, they'd sit yeah, down to have a like bite that. to eat, and he'd come from the curtain behind and slit their throat? Yeah. But, you know, there is a book called, uh, I can't remember the name, but it has to do with a serial killer uh, in Berlin during the Second World War. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not enough that bombs are falling on them. <laughs> you, it's I not mean, bad it's, enough that we got we got <laughs> allied bombs, now we got a serial killer. <laughs> the women have to dodge a serial killer 
so they're getting back everything that they gave out now they're getting all the bombs back and, and we're, we're taking care of their cities but then there's also somebody running around killing women so yeah it's cold you know it's, it's rough catching serial killers nowadays i was talking to a law enforcement fellow from uh, oregon and there yeah. was a uh, is he they still haven't uh, they know who he is but the guy is too damn good or bad too damn yeah. bad uh yeah. They even got him once and said, and he had been charged with murder in like Tennessee or something and got off uh -huh. both ways. Right. And he pretty much, without directly saying so, was saying, they didn't get me then, you're not going to get me now. Yeah, and they may not. And they could never link him to any no. of that. Yes, Mark Boyer. Dorothy? What's that? Dorothy Cunette. Dorsey Burnett, I, mean, I had some of his records, Dorsey Burnett. <laughs> um, listen, my, uh, I have a friend who was a uh, homicide detective in Florida, uh, in, in Miami, and there was a, they were investigating the disappearance of a woman at a, at a trailer park. And, you know, he, these cops, I mean, they're always doing their job. And there was a guy that lived alone in, like, uh, a trailer a couple doors down. They did some investigation of him. And he had moved from someplace, I can't remember the state, but it was up north somewhere. And he had been accused of killing a woman at a trailer park who lived next to him up there. No, you don't want to move in next to him. No, you don't. And so they interviewed him, and I remember my friend said, you know, he and the other detectives walked away, and they said, we absolutely know this guy killed that woman. And we we may not even find her body. But he said, but they all decided this is going to be hard to nail this on to, to this guy because he just, you know, there's no evidence. But but they all, you know, sometimes you just know. Yeah. And uh, so that was the deal. I mean, I guess they watched him for a while, but, you know. He, he didn't kill anybody kill else that week, and so what could they do about it? They had to wait till he moved. He got a new neighbor. Yeah, there, 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 was a guy, there was a guy here in Louisville who had been brought up on charges of something. Real tall fellow with bushy hair, and he lived at the apartment uh, complex. And, and Art Garfunkel. <laughs> Well, you know what? <laughs> yeah, a, a tall one. But the, but the thing of that was he was, the, the day before the woman was to testify against him, uh, she disappeared. No. About, yeah, yeah, yeah. And within about a month, they were pulling her car out of the Ohio River, and her body was in the trunk. So It's hard to steer from the trunk. Yeah, well, it is difficult. But uh, everybody, everybody knows this guy killed her, or he had her killed. And uh, so... Was there any motive? Obviously, there must have been means and opportunity, but any known motive? I can't remember. I can't remember what the original charge was against this guy, but had she testified, they were sure that she was, he was going to go to prison. So, you know, I mean, life to this guy didn't, didn't fit didn't other people's lives. Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing about psychopaths, uh, missing the yeah, emotion chip. You know, uh, carve a turkey, carve a human, and all the same difference. Oh, that, there was one quote from a serial killer, from a killer, anyway, who, who broke into a guy's home, and the guy comes down the stairs and catches them, and he kills the guy. He says, I taught him an important lesson about life. Uh-huh. I mean, that's... He can't hold on to it. Yeah, long, no, no, not, not what he means to me in the dark. <laughs> I mean that's just in nuts, insane stuff. Well, well, this guy who killed, uh, this guy who who had this woman killed. I mean, if he were going to go to prison for even just a couple of years, he probably decided, uh, uh I'll just have her killed. So everybody knew it, but he never, ever, ever was charged with her murder. They, they could never find a connection, but everybody, all the cops know that he did this. So. Well, that's like the was it about the bully? Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah, was, everyone, everyone did it. You know, it's like murder on the Orient Express. We didn't oh, see yeah. nothing when the town bully got murdered <laughs> in no broad kidding. daylight. <laughs> no kidding, no kidding. Well, you know who was that guy that uh, that book about? Yeah, the guy out in what was it? Um, a small town in uh, Missouri, and uh, who's the author? And I remember they did a sixty-minute show on this guy. This guy would bully everybody. Who was it? Who was that? Like Mark, did you look it up? By a shotgun blast in the middle of the town. Right, right. Mistaken. No, book on Harry. Story. Harry McLean. But the bottom line of that killing is, it seems like everybody knows it, but nobody's talking. Yeah. And so they fixed it that way. Let yeah. me, uh, boy, I'm embarrassed now because I've I've had uh, Harry on the show a couple times talking about that book, and yeah, uh, good book. he's a writer and lawyer living in Denver, Colorado, who writes true crime books. Won an Edgar Award for his book Broad Daylight.
I knew yeah, he was a Vega Award winner. Yeah, I think he traveled for like a year. I think they sold their home and they traveled. I, I don't know where he is now. I haven't kept up with him. He's a talented guy. Yep, yeah, he is. Yeah, a lot of talented guys in the true crime field were all horribly underpaid. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll let you know a little secret. <laughs> if you want to be a true crime author, don't quit your day job. Unfortunately, my day job was at night. <laughs> at night. Playing the hits for the kids. Funny. <laughs> you know, we think Burl Bear is too old to play the hits for the kids. You can see how old he is on the radio. <laughs> uh, oh, well, that's show business. That's show business. That's show business. So uh, what, what are you going to do? What are you, have you run out of Ted Bundy victims to talk about? No, I've, well, I've got this new book that, that came out in April called Through an Unlocked Door. It's a book I've been wanting to write for a number of years, but I, I couldn't really get, get around to doing it because I always had something else going on. And McFarlane started a, um, uh, an imprint called Exposit Books. Called and what books? They, yeah, it's called Exposit Books. Oh, Exposit Books. books. Yeah. yeah. And so they, but they've asked me to write for them again over the years, but it's never worked out. So... Uh, they they asked me if if if, uh, if I would like to write a book for this new imprint, and I thought about this book uh, through an unlocked door, and I thought, well, as I, I ran it past them. They said they'd like it, so we signed a contract, and it came out in April. And uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, there seems to be a problem within the United States. A lot of people do not lock their doors. They do in high crime areas, which is good. But if you're living in what we like to call a relatively normal area, a lot huh. of people don't lock their doors. In Canada, they don't. Huh? In Canada, they don't lock their doors. They say, why should I lock myself in? Yeah, well, yeah, they, well, they, well there might be a smart thing to do. But uh, the thing, the, the, the premise of this book is that I, I, I use all cases where people have entered homes uh, through either unlocked windows or unlocked doors. And like this one lady who said uh, she she refused. Her family were they were always trying to get her to lock her doors. She said, "I will not be a prisoner in my own, own home. I will not lock myself up like that." And of course, uh, Richard, uh, not Rich, uh, yeah, Richard Ramirez. Oh, wonderful fellow. Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, he slaughtered her. Uh, but uh, the unlocked door is. It, here's the thing about locked doors. I mean. They're, they're, locks are there for a reason, and uh, it, it, a, a locked-up home will not absolutely guarantee that someone will stay out, but it can be pivotal. A deter a deterring a, an amateur. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, because the, you and have to make noise to get in, and sometimes the, the people inside have dogs, or they could be alerted by something breaking, and... Uh, Perhaps that person will wake up and put a bullet. Well, that's the difference between a, a professional burglar and just some jerk who's trying to rob your house. Either way, they're a jerk. Uh, but well, if, you know, if, yeah. if you go into, if your home has been burglarized by a trained broadcast professional, <laughs> they give the time and temperature before they leave. No, they. You would never know they were there until you find what isn't there. Yeah. If the place has been ransacked, drawers open, that's some uh -huh. punk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, but here, so here's the thing. So you've got people. I mean, okay, now there was these two guys, these two losers uh, in Connecticut. They had been robbing places, never committed any murders. They had been robbing places for uh, a number of years, and it would always go through unlocked doors. And one day they entered an unlocked door through Dr. Dr. Pettit's home. And, uh, but this time it was different. It wasn't just about robbery. And... Uh, when it was all over, they had murdered his wife and two daughters Ooh. and did what they could to tr to, to uh, tr try to kill him. And, and the, the younger of the two, he'd been robbing homes for even longer than his older partner for about 14 years. And it was the first time that a robbery turned violent. But uh, I write about a kid named Alec Kreider who was 16, and Kreider was having desires to kill people. And so he decided one night... He would uh, go out and murder uh, a family, and he chose to kill his best friend, who was, uh, his name was Kevin Haynes. And he knew he wouldn't have any trouble getting in the home because the, the home, they never locked their doors. And they would go to bed at night. It's it, it just, uh, to me, it's unimaginable. But, but, he, but, but he slipped in, he 
came in the house. He was able to murder the parents. And then he went, and this was his best friend. He went into Kevin's room, and he was going to smother him, but Kevin was laying on his, I believe it was his back. So he just started stabbing him with this other oh. knife. And there was a big struggle in the room, and Kevin was weakened by the loss of blood, and he was able to overcome him and murder him. He did not know that the daughter was home from college. Her name was Maggie, and she was able to escape. But here's the thing. I talked to the district attorney um, up there, and um, you could tell from the reports that it was a sea of homes with just unlocked doors. And I remember the district attorney told me, and I could tell from the reports, that after this happened, People were locking their doors. They were buying guns that they didn't have any. They were buying. But I didn't need them as much then because they already got the guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But see here, no. But now, but this was, but but they didn't get him for a while. But here's the thing: uh, there was even one fellow that he pulled up a chair to his like a front room window to look out just to see, make sure nobody's coming at night. He couldn't sleep. So so then they finally caught this kid, and I guess the people thought, well, now evil has been encased. It's encased within this kid. It can't be in anybody else. We're safe. Utopia. It's like heaven here. It's okay. We'll keep the doors unlocked again. So I asked the district attorney, I said, are the people, because of this horrendous murder that occurred, are they still locking their doors? He said, no, most of them aren't. He said that they're, it's kind of like back to normal. And so that's the problem. Now, it's true. If you leave your door unlocked, chances are no one's going to come in and murder you. But there was, a, there was a, 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 a trucker by the name of Adam Leroy Lane, and he used to kill his, his victims around, say, 2 a.m., but he had a rule of thumb, and that rule of thumb was he only wanted to go into homes that had unlocked doors. And uh, there, there, there had been reports of people hearing their doorknobs jiggling. Mm. Uh, and, of course, it was locked, and he couldn't go in. But he didn't want to fool with anything that was locked. Right. He didn't want to take a chance on breaking anything uh, and creating noise. So, anyway, so it's a book about that. And uh, Sounds like a fascinating book. Have you read it? <laughs> Well, yeah, I had to read it many times before I submitted it to the Isn't book. that a weird thing? You know, I can't, uh, many people agree with me, they can't read my books either. But uh, <laughs> when, when I read, uh, when, I, when I'm working on the book, writing the book, like I'm working on one right now, it's driving me nuts because it's so good, I want to make it better. There you go. <laughs> uh, me too, I'm working on one too. Uh, yeah, and so you, you, when it first comes out and you get that big rush when the box arrives and there's your name on a book. There it is. <laughs> oh, it's still a rush. Uh, <laughs> but then you open it up and re when you start reading it what you were seeing in your mind isn't the story you've written but where you were when you wrote it yeah and it takes like 15 for me it takes like maybe 15 20 years i could open up a book that i wrote say murder in the family or what is something from like 2000 yeah. and i could read it like a book yeah. because i've forgotten it already <laughs> oh there you go and i go oh did i write that jeez <laughs> yeah. well yeah, i mean listen to, I, I have to go back and refer my main book on Bundy is, is, of course, the Bundy Murders Comprehensive History, and I was fortunate in finding out a lot of new information that was published for, for the first time. But it's really packed with facts, and it's it, it's really a it. I, I really put a lot into that book, and I found out a lot of really really good information. Well, it's so much so I have people contact me occasionally, and if they ask me about something, I'll refer to my book. Yes, and I got to look it up. I, I have that happen when I've been interviewed on radio shows such as this one. <laughs> Uh, where I was, I was on uh, was it Dan Zupanski's show, I guess, uh, okay. recently, and uh, yeah. he was asking me questions about I, th I think it was Mom said kill, or yeah. uh, uh, I think that's what it was, and I, was, I didn't know. <laughs> I had written the book years ago. I didn't have a copy of it. I had to go on no. Google Books, you know, no <laughs> and uh, refresh. No you know. And they, yeah, they, they, there's little things. There's little things that can slip away dates or something or, or something. Oh, yeah. What, what did so-and-so yeah. say when he saw such and such? You go, oh, damned if I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's in your book. I mean, you, know, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I, I've written so much about Bundy, and I did those two additional books where I was lucky. I, I was able to find that new information for also b both of those. So I consider the, the last two companion volumes to the first, but it is a trilogy. But, but. But the thing of it, I don't forget. I, I, I can never forget the nature of Bundy or, or, or what he did. That's imprinted within me, as are the victims. 
and what they went through. And I, I know how each one died and, and how things went down. And so those things don't leave. But no. you ask me, like, about a particular date. Oh, no, forget that. So that's what stays with you is, is the, the victims. I'm, and... Uh, yeah, it does stay with you. Yeah, you, you got to almost put up, you got to be, I mean, I was never raised, like, to be a, an EMT, you know, uh, <laughs> or, you know, right. uh, kind of a firefighter, or just someone who has to deal with these things with finding mutilated bodies and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. And so yep. to launch into uh, my first serious true crime book, much like yours, is one where there was a horrible killer killing kids, and it was oh, just... Oh God! And it's I had read about. pictures of the and people when they read that book is just so horrifying and disgusting the what the things this guy did. Yeah. I put the pictures of the little kids up on on my computer monitors, but so always keep in mind, right. you know, who yeah. I'm writing for here. Yeah, what happened? It's unbelievable. Well, you know, you you, you dive into these these uh, uh, these worlds uh, and you're there and you're experiencing it. And I remember when I finished uh, the uh, Bundy murders, it was a two-and-a-half-year marathon every day, seven days a week, day and night. Uh, and w when I finished that book, I was so happy to be done with it and get myself out. Get your brain out of that. Like, if you ever want to hear a fascinating interview done from this very same radio program, uh, look up a Lowell Caulfield uh Oh, yeah, I know, Lowell. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, that was his last true crime book. Okay, now, which one was it? That, uh, uh, House of, uh, was it House of Secrets? It's got the oh, same title okay. as Todd Goldberg's book with... Uh, okay. And it's, yep. uh, by the way, every one of the family's a murderer. And the grandpa turns to the granddaughter and says, we get that baby to stop crying so they kill the baby. Yeah, I mean, it's just oh, insane, uh, horrifying. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to speak for Lowell. I mean, he's a brilliant talented writer Bissell Meshuggah yeah. as we say but uh, yeah. that put him through the ringer that book really did it and oh you know it did yeah yeah it, 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 it just it, it yeah it, it's really something that's what I've always said and I don't write much western history out of all the books I've written I've only written two about Custer but but the thing of it is is that writing western history is so it's so much easier to do oh, yeah. almost refreshing compared to true crime because you're gonna you gotta delve into this stuff and I, I remember you know sometimes i'll read about something and i'll think oh god just another abduction and murder and sometimes i won't even read the article i just make a mental note of where it was and i go on because you know when you just you've seen so much of this stuff and you've you just know what goes on and how and i've written about a lot of cases from kentucky and ohio and places like that in pennsylvania and and you, you you get into these murders and the things that people do, and it's just unimaginable. Oh, it is. And so, you know, when uh, I did uh, Body Count, Spokane Serial Killer, the yeah. first people that Robert Lee Yates killed were friends of, right. of my family in Walla Walla. And oh, then, I did not know that. Uh, yeah, that's they killed him in Walla Walla, Washington. And they were yep. friends of the family. And uh, oh. then when he was murdering these uh, women of high-risk lifestyles, as they term it, oh, yeah. in Spokane, uh, uh -huh. I, I had met, uh, never did business with it, I had met one of them because she was a, a girlfriend of a very good friend of mine. And yeah. then a couple of them, and I'd actually met these people. And the victims and the killer, and it's all from my hometown. We went to the same, and my, my daughter went to the same school as his, the killer's daughter. People yeah. always interacted back and forth. There's like 13 other authors wanted to do the book. Right. And, and uh, uh, the executive uh, editor of the publishing company got hold of me and said, Burl, you lived in these same towns. You yeah, you need to do that. You know these people. Yeah. Yeah, I said, yeah, I actually know these people. And yeah, he said, well, then okay. you're the one you should do it. And so I did. But that was difficult, too, you know, because yeah. when you know people, you know, I yeah, know that exactly. person. Exactly. There was a girl killed here in, uh, in uh, not, not far from Louisville that I, she, she, she would wait on me sometime at a restaurant or a place I would go to to see some, someone that, that I knew out in, a, in a certain area a few months outside of Louisville. And I remember this girl. She was a, just a nice kid. And one day she turned up missing and then she was found murdered. Oh. And it took years, years for them to figure out who did this, but they finally did. But uh, I used to think, oh my God, that's that kid that waited on me and we were talking. Uh, he's just a nice kid. And you think, and, and she's now gone forever. And it does, it has an effect. So I can imagine you going back home and dealing with people that were family members of this, of this guy. That did, I'll that, tell you, the, the brother, the brother of... Uh 
the first uh, bail victim was a couple out having a picnic. And yeah. that's the first people Robert Lee Yates killed. He's out doing his little target practice by the park and decides to fulfill his fantasy and murders wow. these perfectly fine. What he learned an important lesson as a serial killer is you don't kill prominent, well-liked, well-known people. That's true. And you don't yep. shoot them uh, with their head in your lap with a three fifty-seven. No. So what I he did is after that is only women of high-risk lifestyles, in other words, uh -huh. street women, uh -huh. uh, prostitutes, if yeah. you will. Right, right. Uh, the, they're seen as the buffer. As long as they're yeah. killing them, they're not killing real people. And uh, that's really a shame because the detectives need to work as hard catching it, those killers, too. And I think most of them are coming, don't you? What's that? I say I think most detectives try to work as hard solving those as they would. Uh, yeah, they, uh, well, I'll tell you the difference. In Spokane, the Homicide yeah. Task Force, which unfortunately was underfunded, finally the government came up, the federal government came up with $8 million to help defray the costs who were breaking the whole thing. Oh, uh, good. What they did was kind of unprecedented. Is I okay. mean, the last person that a drug dealer or a prostitute uh, wants yes. to talk to is a cop. They would go to these drug dealers and prostitutes say, you know, time out, time. Uh, listen, here's my card. I don't care how much drugs you're selling. I don't care who you're selling them to. I don't care what you've got on you. King's X here. We don't care. Someone is killing your friends. Homicide takes precedence over any of this other crap. And so... Uh, we and we're not going to come back later and arrest you because we already know what you're doing and we don't care because relative to everything else is nothing. Right. So we need your help to catch this guy well, yeah, because he may, and they thing. formed actually bonds of trust with the drug dealers and the prostitutes uh -huh. and that helped catch the guy. Meanwhile, on the other side of the state, they took the other attitude and they uh, didn't do that. Hey, we've run out of time. This went by real fast. Mark C.G. Boyer, of course, fell asleep. <laughs> he thinks he's Howard. <laughs> if uh, Howard Lapidus was here, he'd say thank you so much for being on the show, Kevin Sullivan. Buy all of Kevin's books and read them, buy them, believe them. All right? Thanks again, Kevin. Burl, let me ask you a question. Yes, what is it? What's next? Magic Matt Al and the Demons of Decadence, including me, because I'm so cute. Right here at Outlaw Radio Live. Dot.